I don't know if you knew this, but we're come to that time of year where preseason football has begun. The hype has started. You know, you guys may know of or maybe related to people who are very ardent, fanatical um, fans of any, football, of any particular team. I know out here, out here, it's the Cowboys. I didn't understand it until I was here for a couple of weeks or a couple of years that I realized how crazy Cowboy fans are out here, you know. Um, my team, I'm kind of disappointed because my team was the Chargers. They left San Diego, so now they're Los Angeles. So I'm kind of in a state of denial. I'm in a state of um, football depression. You know, I'll still, I will still watch it, um, but right now I feel like I have no team. You know, I, I almost feel like lost. I don't have a team to cheer for. Um, but it's interesting because, I, as I said, during this time, all the apparel comes out, the jerseys, the shirts, um, you know, the flags are start to get hung up in the front lawn. All the cups, mugs, dishes come from behind the cabinet and come forward and, you know, some people will light candles for their team. Um, and uh, you hear them talk all the time, you know, this is the year. This is the year they're going to do it. You know, I, I know that they've got the right people, they've got the right staff, the right coaches. It's going to happen this year. Somehow, they, well, they have this optimism. They have this, they're strong fans of, this, of these teams because somehow they identify with them, with this team. I know for me, like I said, it was the Chargers because I'm from San Diego. I grew up watching them. So that was my home team. And, and I identified with the San Diego Chargers, now Los Angeles Chargers, because they were my home team. So it could be that. It could be other reasons why they identify with that team. But there's a lot of hype behind it. And a lot of times people will just recognize who that person, who that person is cheering for by what they're wearing and how they're talking and their conversations. But have you ever asked yourself, if you're a Christian here this morning, have you ever asked yourselves, do the people around me identify me as a Christian? When people look at me and talk to me, do they see that I have just as much passion, even more passion for Jesus than that favorite sports team that I like. It's hard. I know that. There's, you know, it's scary. It's hard to be known as passionate for Jesus, for someone that people have a hard time believing in. But I hope um, if it's something you've struggled with, if it's something that um, 
you've kind of wanted to know how to do that more. If Jesus is really in your heart, if he's really, if you're really that passionate for him, and you've been struggling with, okay, how do I show people how much he means to me, that I am, that I do love him and that I am his follower. This morning, this morning's passage will hopefully show you how to, will help you do that. We'll show you how to do that. We'll give you some insight as far as how to be known as a follower of Christ. What I hope that you'll discover this morning is that God is glorified in us when we remain in Him because He sees us becoming more like Him. I'll say that again. God is glorified in us when we remain in Him because He sees us becoming more like Him. So let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord God, thank you again for this morning, for allowing us to to worship you with our lips, our hearts, our minds, Lord, our ears, with everything. And now as we open up your word, as we look upon the words that you wrote for us, we ask that you reveal yourself to us, Lord. We want to become more like you. We want to be stronger, more faithful followers, Lord. And in the world we live in, it's hard, it's difficult. With the pressures and temptations all around us, it's not easy, Lord. Or show us, speak to us this morning, the importance of remaining in you. It's just simply doing that, that your light will shine out, out of us, Lord. That it will just your light will flow from us just by simply remaining in you. Lord, fill us this morning with your Holy Spirit. And may we just understand and see what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 24. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all these things and is true and is not a lie. Just as he taught you, remain in him. Now, after having warned his readers about those antichrists who are denying and spreading lies about the Father and the Son, 
John now urges them, what you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. Now, in case you may be wondering what it is they heard from the beginning, it was the message of the gospel. It was the gospel message they heard, believed, and accepted about Jesus Christ. This gospel they heard, he tells them, must remain in them to protect them against the influence of those false teachers. He then tells them the positive benefit of having the gospel message remain in them. He says, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. In verse 25, John further explains the blessings promised to those who allow the message to remain in them. What is that promise, he tells them? Eternal life. In other words, when the truth of the gospel lives in us, then God lives in us. When God lives in us, we have a promise from Him of eternal life. Now the question these first couple of verses challenge us to answer and ought to challenge you, each person here, is this gospel in us? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ in you? Now I'm not talking about if it's in your mind, if you have it memorized and you know what it, you know what it is, you know what it is. You're able to, to recite it like you would your favorite song or your favorite poem or whatever it is. That you actually, what, what he's saying here and what I'm talking about is if the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive and active in you, do you believe it? Walk by it. Trust it. And live in it. If you consider yourself a Christian, then the gospel should be the most meaningful aspect that makes up your identity. Because you see, without the gospel, life is meaningless. There's no purpose. Your only purpose is for yourself. Your only purpose is to live for the world. However, with the gospel, not only does your life have meaning, but it also has an eternal purpose. The reason the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to, be, ought to be, mean everything to you is because by it we're saved. You see, the, this is what the gospel does. The gospel saves us from the punishment we deserved for our sins. We're saved from having to endure an eternal separation from God. Imagine being eternally separated from the love of the Father. That's what hell is going to be. And, as, and, and related to that, it saves us from the suffering torment of hell. Had we never believed and accepted the message of the gospel, 
we would still be dead in our trespasses. We would still be dead in our sins. And any hope that we, we would have would just be an empty hope. Now, I know there may be some who don't know what the gospel is, who are unfamiliar with the gospel, who aren't sure they know what the gospel is. Well, let me share with you the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. There he says, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed to no purpose. And here's what he says. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So to put it more simply, this is what the gospel is. God sent his only son to teach us the truth about who he is. His son, Jesus Christ, gave up his life on the cross for our sins, so that our sins may be forgiven. And after three days, he rose from the dead. That's the message of the gospel. Now, sadly, and this is, the, this is the fact of the matter, I think, there are many people who see the gospel message as just another message. It wouldn't surprise me that there are atheists, agnostics, and people from other religions who could articulate the gospel, the gospel better than some Christians. It wouldn't surprise me because I realize that it's possible for a person to know about a lot of things and not understand it. I'll give you an example about that. When my daughter was in preschool, she memorized the preamble to the Constitution. I was surprised and shocked when she recited that to us. I was like, wow, I didn't, I didn't even know how to, I didn't even have it memorized. I didn't even know what it was. But she had it memorized line by line. The thing is, she knew it, but did she understand it? It's one thing, again, to, to know something, have it memorized, but another thing to truly understand it. So she knew it. She, could mem she had it memorized, but... I'm not sure if she really understood, at that age, I'm not sure if she really understood what that preamble was saying. My point is, anyone can know the gospel. Anyone can recite the gospel. However, it's not until a person receives it and believes in the one who this good news is about that it becomes alive, active, and life-changing. 
Now, if you're wondering why the gospel is good news, well, here's one reason. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A second reason the gospel is good news is because salvation and eternal and our eternal home in heaven are guaranteed through Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, says, According to His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's good news because God loves us. God loves us enough that He sent His only Son to die for us. And it's good news because as a result of Jesus' death on the cross, we have an eternal home. We have an eternal hope. That, if there's any good news at all, that is the best news. We have that. We have Jesus. It is this gospel message that John is speaking of that ought to be in you. This message of the gospel, he says, ought to be in you. And if it's in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father and have the promise of eternal life. We then see in verse 26 that John provided these exhortations for the faithful because of the attempt of false teachers to deceive them. He realizes that both the Antichrist and defectors he mentioned in verses 18 and 19 have spurned the truth and can adversely influence the readers to do the same. However, he tells them next that they have a safeguard to keep them from being deceived. He tells them that they have an anointing. And what is that anointing? It's none other than the Holy Spirit, which they received at conversion. It is this anointing that teaches and enables the readers to retain the truth and have a relationship with God. The Holy Spirit also guides believers into the truth and are given the resources for knowing the truth. And the Holy Spirit guides believers into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of questions about who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit is. When it comes to the third member of the Holy Trinity, there's a lot of questions because not much. It's, it's, it's not, a lot of times he's not taught about properly or people don't actually know 
much about the Holy Spirit. There's un misunderstandings, misconceptions about who He is. Now what most Christian evangel evangelicals are certain about is that the Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in a person the moment they surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. The moment you say, yes, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I accept you. I believe in you. I believe you are God. I believe the Holy Spirit comes and makes his dwelling in your heart, in your life, inside of you. The biggest question many people have is who or what is the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit a thing? Is it a, you know, uh, an essence? Is it um, a ghost? Is it, what, what, what is it? Or is it a person? Well, here's what I believe the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a divine person because he shares some of the same characteristics. We're told, the Bible tells us that he shares some of the same characteristics as us, as us human beings. For example, and um, I'm not going to read all the verses if you're you know, taking notes or whatever. Um, I'll be sharing the verse and explain to you what it says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it tells us that the Holy Spirit has a knowledge and a will just like you and me. Romans 8.27 tells us that he has a mind with his own ideas of thought, feeling, and purpose. In Romans 15.30, we're told that the Holy Spirit is someone who loves as tenderly as God the Father or Jesus Christ the Son. In Nehemiah 9.20, this describes him as having intelligence and goodness. And in Ephesians 4.30, we're told that he grieves just as we would grieve when we're hurt by someone we love. So now that we know that the Holy Spirit is a person, here are just a few things the Bible tells us that he does for you. The Holy Spirit reminds you about all that Jesus taught. He is a personal witness. He is a personal witness to testify about Christ. He convicts you of sin. He guides you to the truth. And he brings glory to Jesus. Now, I know I just scratched the surface when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I mean, honestly, I can spend two hours, two or more hours, describing and telling you more about the Holy Spirit. There's so much more that the Bible tells us about who He is. He doesn't have to be a mystery to you. It's in there. You just have to study it, look into it. I didn't even get into his divine attributes. I only spoke about his, his, his um, 
attributes that, that we can relate to as human beings. I didn't even get to the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts, the spiritual gifts that He gives to all of us. Lord willing, you know, I, I hope to do that for you one day, to just spend a whole study on the Holy Spirit. But in the meantime, do the study. Search Him out. The Holy, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you can know Him personally. He wants to make Himself known to you. There's a couple, uh, there's a couple books that I'd like to recommend if you're interested in reading more about the Holy Spirit. The first one is called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Great book. And the second is R.A. Torrey's The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit. Those two books get really deep into the person of, of the Holy Spirit, into the third person of the Trinity. Now, again, we're not going to fully understand the concept of the Trinity. No one really has. It's been debated since the church began. But we know that the Trinity consists of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three in one. And again, the moment you accepted, if you truly accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this third person of the Trinity lives in you to guide you in what is true and to warn you about what isn't. Therefore, it's, it's so important to remain in Him. It's important that you just remain in Him because He's guiding you, He's teaching you, He's showing you. If you ever have doubts about something, about someone, He's there, He's in you to teach you and guide you. Okay, let's finish up chapter 2 by looking at the last two verses. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So now, little children, remain in him, so that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. After each one of my kids was born, Robin and I would often talk about what physical qualities, what physical features they took from us. Now, you know, all three of the kids were born with Robin's button nose. You know, Jacob was born with a bunch of hair like me. You know, Anthony was just born with an awesome smile like his mom. You know, we, we just would talk about, we would have conversations and just talk about those physical features that they took from us. Now when their individual, started, as they started growing, their individual personalities
began to develop. And as they did, our conversations changed into what character traits they took from us. You know, oh, that, you know, this one has your laugh. This one has your stubbornness. This one has your, your um, motivation. I mean, we went on and on about these character traits. Now, at the age they're in, now we just blame each other. <laughs> now we just blame each other for uh, the, the things that we don't like about our kids. It's your fault. It's your fault he's like this, you know. Um, but what I'm, what I'm saying here is that as Christians, we want to resemble our Father. If you're a born-again Christian, your goal ought to be to look like Him, to be like Him. to resemble your Heavenly Father. He wants to look at you and say, yep, that's my kid. That's my child. This is what John is telling his readers here. When we choose to remain in Him, we become more like Him. Once more, addressing his readers with the affectionate term of little children, John continues to share what it means to live in Jesus. In verse 28, John states two important reasons to continually remain in him. Firstly, so that when he appears, we may have boldness. This boldness is a confident an eager expectation of the day Christ comes back at the rapture of the church. This is that feeling of saying, I'm ready. I'm ready for him to come for us, for the rapture to happen right now. It's that bold, eager expectation that no matter what you're doing, no matter what's going on in your life, you'll be ready. You see, those who've lived in obedience to him will be able to have that bold confidence at his coming. The reason why is because they remained in the Father and in the Son and trust in the promise of eternal life. And the second reason to continually remain in him is so that we not, is so that we not be ashamed before him at his coming. John is aware that at the rapture, some believers may not be conducting themselves in a manner that pleases the Lord. You see, somewhere along the way in their Christian walk, they compromised. They, they just got lazy. They, and maybe lazy isn't the right word, but they lost that expectancy of Jesus' imminent arrival. He started thinking to himself, oh, he's not going to come right now. He's not, it's not going to happen right now. I'm not, you know, I'll be okay. I'll be okay if I, you know, watch this uh, movie that I'm not supposed to be watching or, or try this drug that I'm not, this illegal drug I'm not supposed to be 
doing. It's okay if I um, sleep with this guy or this girl. You know, he's not coming back. And I can ask for forgiveness later on. Here, see, he's telling his, the believers that if they don't want to get caught with their hand in the cookie jar, they must continually abide in Christ. John's point is that if people remain in Christ, when he appears and judges his people, they may be confident and unashamed before him. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. I believe here he's talking about the rapture of the church. Now it also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the day of the Lord will come just like a, the thief in the night, just like a thief in the night. So this is what I want you to think about. If this event were to happen at any moment, how should you be conducting yourself? Would you be ready? This is the question that we must keep in mind when you're presented with a choice to sin or not to sin. You know, I, I hate to say it, and it saddens me to, to even think about it, but I think there's going to be a lot of Christians who will be raptured in the middle of doing things they're not supposed to be doing. My prayers are that, is that everyone here will not find themselves in that situation will not find themselves in a compromising situation when the rapture happens, but rather find themselves prepared to find themselves ready for that day to happen. And so when that day finally does, you may have that boldness and not be ashamed for choosing a momentary act of disobedience. You have to be ready at all times. We're told that. He can come at any moment. I know it. the fact that this can happen, it, it keeps me on my toes. I don't want to be caught doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. I want to be able to Come to him and say, yes, Lord, I lived for you. I lived in obedience to you. In every moment of every day, it's important that you stay alert, remain vigilant, and continue to abide in him. Now, in verse 29, he wants the reader to understand the result of retaining the truth and maintaining one's relationship with the Lord is living righteously. Membership in God's family can be recognized by family resemblance. Because the truth states that God is righteous and holy, then those who are born of Him 
will resemble him by doing what is right. In other words, this is what he's saying. Since the Father is righteous, then the believer ought to be just like him by practicing righteousness. This is what God meant when he said, Be holy because I am holy. Now, although Christians will not perfect righteousness until they are glorified with Jesus, they can practice it right now. They can practice righteousness since they are born of Him. Look, I I know and understand that it's not easy, that we live in a world where we're bombarded with temptation in every direction. The moment you walk out your doors from your house, that temptation is there. You're surrounded by it, whether it's in your works, in your, at work or at school. It's there. Doing what is right, a lot of times, doesn't come easy. So when we see verses like this, where we're asked to act, to be holy, and act righteously, it may seem like an impossible task. It may seem like, you know what, it's too overwhelming. I could never be righteous. I could never be holy. It's too much of a burden. I can't. I won't be able to accomplish that. In a sense, you're right. The reason it's hard is because it's unnatural for us to do what is right in the eyes of God. Because of our sinful nature, we're just awful at it. We're awful at doing what is right in the eyes of God. Yes, again, I, I, I agree with you. It would be, acting, doing what is right in the eyes of God would be as if you were asked to use your non-dominant hand to do your daily tasks, to write, to throw the ball. If you no longer, if someone asked you, you know what, you're no longer going to use your dominant hand. You're going to use your non-dominant hand. It's going to seem unnatural. It's not, it's not going to be easy. But is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. But, you see, just because something is difficult, it doesn't mean that it's impossible. God isn't asking you to be Him. Because, yes, that would be impossible. He's only asking you to be like Him by choosing to do what is right on a consistent, on a daily basis. We all know, we all know that in order to be good at something that you're not naturally good at, you must consistently practice at it. You must put it into practice. I admire Anthony. I, I think he's, one of the reasons I think he is so awesome is because his drive and his determination when it comes to skateboarding. I've learned from watching him skateboard that in order to master any trick, 
you have to do it over and over and over again. And if you ever, you know, spend time with him at the skate park, you'll see. You'll see him. Maybe spending, what, an hour sometimes? Maybe, you know, trying to master a trick. And then once he masters it, he's like, yeah, he's excited about it. And then he moves on to the next trick, and we'll practice that one for another hour. He knows that it's not going to be easy for him, but he has that drive and determination. He wants to master that trick. It does. It takes a lot of practice and unfettered determination to succeed. This same principle applies to righteousness. Now, righteousness and doing what is right is pretty much goes hand in hand. It's pretty much the same thing. We must practice it and have that determination to get good at it. As I said, it's not going to be easy. I've seen Anthony fall so many times and he's, we've seen him get hurt so many tri- times from just practicing one trick. It's not going to be easy, but God knows our nature and knows we're going to fall. He knows that we're going to fail. And not just a few times, but a lot. He knows that we're going to fail a lot. But he also knows what we're capable of. And guess what? He's on our side. God is on our side cheering for us to be victorious over temptation and sin. Yet, and this is what's so great about our Heavenly Father, is that He's there to comfort and console you when you do lose, when you do fail, when you do fall on your butt. You see, regardless of whether you win or lose, God will always be there. He will always be there for you, no matter what. All of, all of you, all of us, can begin practicing doing what is right in the eyes of God the moment you're done hearing this message. The moment you walk out these doors, you can begin that. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. When you think about, you know, if you're thinking about, oh, I'm, I can never be perfect. If you're thinking about perfection, yeah, you know, you're setting your goals, you know, too high. No. It's momentary, daily, just hourly, minute by minute by minute, doing what is right in the eyes. That's how you practice it. And whenever you do, whenever you do what is right in the eyes of God, it shows that you are God's child revealing the characteristics of your Heavenly Father. These verses, verses 24 to 29, they challenge us to answer these questions. Now, as I mention these questions, think about it. Think about if it applies to you. 
answer these fundamental questions. Do you know the gospel and is it in you? Do you believe and trust in the promise of eternal life? Do you believe without a shadow of a doubt in the Holy Spirit and that, is, that He is living in you? Will you be ready for Jesus when He comes for you at any moment? And lastly, have you been born of Him? If you answered no to any of those questions, or all those questions, or if you can't confidently say yes to all those questions, then you're probably still in darkness. Then you're probably still walking around in the darkness of sin. and not walking in God's light of truth. Now, if you're listening, watching, whatever it is, and you want to begin walking, uh, living righteously, if you want to be a child of God, if you want that, you want to be born of Him, you want, if you want the Holy Spirit to be living in you, are you ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready to sincerely surrender your life to Him? If that's the case, if that's you, then with, with a sincere heart, silently pray this prayer in your heart, in wherever you're at. Lord God, forgive me of my sins. I know that I'm a sinner and that I've sinned against you. So I ask right now that you forgive me. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that my sins have been placed upon him. I confess with my heart that Jesus is Lord. I believe that he is God. And I want to thank you for bringing him here to die for me. So I accept your offer of forgiveness and help me to live the rest of my life <clears throat> in obedience to Him. Help me to live for Him from here on forward. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit so that he will guide me into your truth. Thank you, Lord, for being my God. In Jesus' name, amen.